in the data is literally like what you're teaching your model. And so no matter how good your model is, you know, if like you haven't looked at your data in a while, it's very likely that you have like a bunch of garbage in there, like a bunch of, let's say, like log events that are test logs and they're just like, you know, nobody bothered to filter them out because whatever. Uh, but then you remove those and you see huge performance gains or, you know, recently um, I had a project where, where like uh, literally just changing how we define like what label we, we use. In many ways, if you if you enjoy working with data, I find that like it could be just a very powerful thing to do because it's usually more informative about the actual business application. You kind of get to see like, oh, like, you know, what is the outcome that we're trying to, to model? Uh, and you, you get a lot of, lot of performance gains. Welcome to the Software Misadventures podcast, where we sit down with software and DevOps experts to hear their stories from the trenches about how software breaks in production. We are your hosts, Ronak, Austin, and Guang. We've seen firsthand how stressful it is when something breaks in production, but it's the best opportunity to learn about a system more deeply. When most of us started in this field, we didn't really know what to expect, and wish there were more resources on how veteran engineers overcame the daunting task of debugging complex systems. In these conversations, we discuss the principles and practical tips to build resilient software, as well as advice to grow as technical leaders. Hello everyone, this is Guang. Our guest for this episode is Emmanuel Emerson. Manu is a machine learning engineer at Stripe working on fraud prevention. And before Stripe, he led more than 100 ML projects at Insight, helping fellows from academia or engineering transition into ML, which is actually where I met Manu. It was super nice catching up with him and get his stories and pro tips on things like the common mistakes people make when starting a new ML project. What's similar and different about the life cycle of ML systems compared to traditional software and writing a book? Please enjoy this very educational and fun conversation with Emmanuel Emerson. Uh, hey, Emmanuel. Uh, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. How's it going? <laughs> good, good, good. So, so Manu, we, we met at uh, Inside Data Science uh, a couple years back, um, which is also how I met uh, my co-hosts, uh, Austin and Ronak. Uh, how did you end up at Insight? Um, I ended up at Insight initially as a fellow. I was a data scientist uh, for a couple of years, and I got really interested in um, kind of like deep learning and, and newer approaches to, to ML. And so I joined Insight as a fellow because I was like, it'd be a, nice, a really nice way to change jobs. And then I ended up liking Insight so much that instead of going towards an ML role, um, I stayed there for a couple of years. Nice, nice. Um, what, 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 so I guess for people that are not familiar with the Insight, like maybe a little bit about what uh, does Insight do and how what uh, would you do uh, when you were there? Yeah, so Insight is a professional education company. So the idea is you'll have people that either have PhDs or postdocs or that are uh, engineers or that were data scientists like me um, that want to transition to um, mainly roles in data, so like data engineers and data scientists, um, and they'll come to Insight, and then it's a project-based learning approach. And so you do a project for about a month, um, and then you use that project as a portfolio piece to sort of like go to prospective employers and um, and get interviews and then, um, you know, uh, transition into your new career. And so what I did there is I led the artificial intelligence program, which was mostly, initially it was a lot about kind of like deep learning research and, you know, kind of trying to apply cutting edge research. And then it pivoted to being some of that. And then a big focus on machine learning engineering, which was sort of like what 
many companies really needed at the time and and kind of there was no traditional path into and it was a bit of a like hybrid role in between data science and like engineering um and so spent a couple years leading that program uh which was super fun uh and and ended up through that seeing you know uh over a hundred different ml projects um a lot of those projects that we did were like in partnership with companies so it was really fun to see just a vast array of companies doing ml and helping them out that's interesting, really interesting transition because I imagine, you know, New Europe's were getting a lot of uh, activities and I think a lot of people in the field, you know, talked about like modeling the more research aspect. Uh, was it a kind of a difficult decision trying to switch more towards like, you know, the ML, like the engineering aspect of it, like even during the, the, the program itself? That's super interesting. Yeah, uh, <laughs> kind of for two reasons. Um, it's risky, one, right? Because uh, you, it's sort of a yeah, well, the trend. So actually, what was happening is that there was these like I remember very clearly this being sort of like two waves where kind of companies we were talking to got really excited about the sort of research they would see at the Neurips, and they'd be like, "Oh, we need to hire people that know how to do this. We're going to integrate this, and you know, every single part of of our product is going to be great." And and then kind of basically lagging by maybe like a year or two, you had like the rest of the internet maybe like all of the medium posts and like everybody <laughs> got really excited as well. Uh, but by the time that was happening, uh, the companies we were talking to were saying like, well, you know, like this is kind of great, but but we actually have a bunch of researchers and they're producing this research and it's really good research, but it's incredibly hard to do anything other than than publish it. Like we've tried to integrate it, but you know the researchers they like. We've partnered them with software engineers, but getting them to work together to like speak the same language is actually really challenging because they have different backgrounds and uh, making product work is really challenging. So there was a, a huge need. I remember sitting down and saying like, wow, we've had, you know, 20 conversations in the past month with, with different companies saying the exact same thing, which is we actually are good on AI talent. We just need um, engineers. And so that side in one way was like, uh, became pretty clear. It was hard because it was a pivot. But the part that then was was the hardest, I think, was that then that meant that we were misaligned with the hype cycle, where like <laughs> as everybody was hearing about like, oh my god, AI deep learning, we do all this stuff, it's gonna be great. Uh, they would apply to Insight, and then you know they'd come to the interview and say like, well, what I really want to do is you know like this very specific like computer vision deep learning, and we would have just come off of like again twenty calls with companies that were like, we will never hire someone like this. We have too many of them, you know, like or not never, of course, but but uh, you know that that was really wasn't their need, and so there was a bit of a mismatch. Like we're kind of a we were kind of a two sided marketplace, and there was a bit of a mismatch between um, kind of like what what roles people thought were out there, and then what employers actually were looking for, and so that was maybe the trickiest part. There was was kind of like uh, just getting the messaging out. To be honest, like here's what people are are, are actually looking for, and so we did a lot of work around it blog posts and, and putting white papers out and trying to explain like actually this is probably a promising uh, career direction if you're interested in it like do you think that hype has settled now or do you think that is still the case where like a lot of people who aren't in the field or in the weeds think oh look at this amazing research uh, on ai and deep learning models uh, but actually when you talk to the companies they're like oh we need someone who, who does more on the engineering side with machine learning but not so much on the research side do you think that hype has settled or that it has balanced out over time so hard to tell i feel like i feel like i'm not the right person to ask in a sense that anybody that works at a silicon valley tech company has such a biased (laughs) view of like what actually you know like is probably the real distribution of use cases yeah Uh, but i would say that even you know here which is like probably like pretty advanced compared to like 
uh, the, the the market, it feels like there's still, in my opinion, a bit too much hype, which mm-hmm. is challenging because there's a lot of like really cool applications of genuinely new technology. Like it's not like it's it's all hype. There's a lot of mm-hmm. you know incredible like I'm like deep learning around computer vision, uh, but also a just really great advances around like NLP and language understanding and kind of like big companies have, have shipped really cool things. Um, but it still feels like if you ask, I feel like the a, 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 like average graduate in that field to tell you like which proportion of jobs are actually doing that, um, that sort of like cutting edge modeling, mm-hmm. I think they would almost certainly like overestimate it still. At least that's my bet. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with you there based on what I've seen. But again, uh, <laughs> I am also not the right person to ask. It, it's getting better, though. It, there, there was a time where it was genuinely like 100% of people mm-hmm. wanted to train deep learning models. And that was, you know, 2% of jobs. And, and that, was, that was really uh, hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, Manu, you, let, you actually led the session that I participated in um, back in 2018, 2019. But w- so what impressed me was sort of how diverse the backgrounds of the people that were in my cohort. So some were more academic. They come from, you know, CS or like PhDs uh, in physics. But then you also have people that are, you know, software engineers that want to get more into ML. So I'm going to lead with a very bad question, but I wanted to get your thoughts around this, which is to say that would it be easier for software engineers to pick up ML skills or would it be easier for like, you know, AI sort of research or like for PhDs to pick up like software skills? I mean, I, I feel like it's actually a really good question because I feel like at least it's a question that comes up really often. Um, and it was definitely something that we asked ourselves you know, at a program that tries to recruit people so that they can then be hired by companies. We're like, hmm, you know, uh, kind of which kind of backgrounds would be the most successful, uh, which is a natural question to ask. Initially, I had the impression that it was easier for um, people coming from an experimental background to learn the engineering skills. Um, And that's sort of because, you know, for a lot of the ML work, you the, engine, the uh, experimental side is more of a mindset, and it, it can sometimes be harder to teach a mindset than it is to teach tools. Right. You know, where it's like uh, the mindset is like you formulate a, a hypothesis, and then you say, "Okay, my hypothesis is this," and then I'm going to test it out, and then you 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 design carefully an experiment, and you run your experiment, and then you analyze the results very carefully, and you say, "Okay, based on the results, this is my next step." That's sort of like a a thing that. You can do sometimes in engineering, but but engineering is much more deterministic, where like you, you make a, mm-hmm. like a concrete design and then you implement it. Um, and you know, like you take a person like this and you teach them Python, and, and they can kind of do a good job. I think as the field has has uh, progressed, that my opinion has changed quite a bit actually, um, because like as ML gets deployed in production, a lot more of of, of the scope of what people end up doing is everything around ML. Uh, there was like a, a, a paper by Google around uh, ML systems. And in that paper, they have a graph. And it's like ML systems. And there's, you know, like, a, I think, like, I don't know, like maybe 25 boxes that represent like monitoring and like training and, and whatever. And there's like one very, very small box that's like training a good model. Uh, and that's, you know, that's probably like, I think if, if, you've, if you've worked in, in that domain, you've seen that like that's a small um, proportion of the task. And so even if you're like a really good engineer and maybe it'll take you longer to get that mindset, it's certainly possible to learn it. It'll take you longer to get the engineering, the experimentation mindset. There's so much youthful work for like engineers that are interested in ML that 
strategically, it might be an easier learning path where it's like you'll find a role, you'll get on a team, and then you'll just like kind of like learn by osmosis. And so I, th- I feel like nowadays it might have flipped where it's easier for engineers. But of course, you know, there's no hard and fast rules. It's kind of anybody can do it if they're, they're motivated enough, but it's changed, I think. Nice. And so I remember when I was trying to kind of start my ML project, um, uh, it's very much, you know, trying to, it, I think it's almost kind of like a startup. You're trying to build a product, you're trying to show it to um, potential companies at the end to kind of pique their interest. And um, so maybe, you know, it's not exactly customers are buying a product, but you still you want to have something that's sort of cool, that's shiny, but also hopefully add value, right? So that people, you know, see... Um, but like, you know, the, the, the show is about misadventures and I'm kind of curious, you know, what are some of the common mistakes uh, that people make when they kind of go about starting their like ML project? Yeah, I was trying to think about, about this ahead of, uh, ahead of chatting with you both. I think there's a few and, and I've given up on trying to categorize them all. Um, but I think a, a really common one that used to happen all the time at Insight, but kind of happens everywhere. And like, I've definitely done it as well is that the fun part of machine learning, or one of the fun parts, can be like, you have your, your data set, you have you know your training data, you have your test data, and then like you're just trying your models, you're building new features, and you have like this number, which is like maybe your accuracy, or you know your loss, or whatever, like there's a number you care about, that's your performance metric, and, and you're, you're at the casino, you're, you know, you're playing slot machines, you're like, all right, I'm gonna try this, oh, 0.82, all right, oh, let me try this, oh, 0.85, okay, great, and you, like, you just keep going and you do your thing, and, and like, it truly sometimes I feel was like a gambling addiction where like you'd see fellows and, and, you know, they'd say like, well, I haven't really figured out, you know, what my product is or if it's useful or if anybody cares about it or really even like any of the flow around like what this would be. But I found like a data set of a million text documents and like my accuracy is like 0.99 and I spent like the last seven days on it. And you'd be like, but like, but why? What are you trying to say? would be like, I don't really know. But like, look at this score. It is all the way. It is peaked. Like I've I've solved machine learning. But I think that that was like, and is is still one of the biggest challenges of ML. Is like when you start. Oftentimes, you have to have this kind of like delicate dance where you go between like, what are we trying to do? Like, if you're trying to like, I don't know, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, like predict something new that you're going to show to users, you, you probably want to say like, okay, well, if we're going to predict this new category. You're like, how accurate do we need to be? Okay, we need to be this accurate. Let's try. And then you, you, uh, you fail your first try. And then you like maybe change the product a little bit uh, and go back and forth and have this little dance. Uh, but like the biggest failure mode is like you give a data scientist a data set. They are, you know, they're, they're gone for a week. And they'll come back <laughs> with like a really high number that is uh, usually absolutely useless. And I think that that was one of the most so like common things that we have to like bring back people from the edge. Like, hey, 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 hey. Like, Get away from the laptop. Like you don't need one more training run. You know, just like let's let's take a step back and think about this for a second. Uh, going deeper on that, like, what was it like? Was it usually maybe if you think about it as a product, you don't actually need that sort of uh, level of performance, or is it just plainly wrong? Like you know, the the, the test is polluted, um, or you know, there. How 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 do you go about convincing the fellows? Hey, even though you know you spend seven days on this, but you should look at this other thing that's probably will do you know more important things for your project. Yeah, I mean, it can come in a variety of flavors. I'll give you like a kind of example that happened multiple times. Is like, so we would do consulting projects 
for um, for companies. And, and the idea is like they'd come with a problem, and, and you know they'd like present it to the fellow, and the fellow would help out. And like a common shape of that would be a company comes in and says like, well, you know, we've tried, we've done this model for this thing, and we've gotten eighty percent whatever precision. Uh, we'd love it if like you know your fellow could like get that number up. And multiple times, you know, it's like the the fellow would like do some work and like get the number to like ninety nine percent, like almost immediately, like in a couple days. And you know, they'd be like, Oh, like, you know, have I solved it? Am I done with this project? And and multiple times, uh, as you alluded to, like we looked at the test set and I remember one case where it was like predicting some sort of outcome from uh, from patient data and it's like the same patients were in the training set and the test set. Right. And so if you just and the, and the patient ID was a feature, and so if you just use the patient ID, you know, like you get a hundred percent. And in fact, it was kind of surprising that you know the company didn't have a hundred percent initially. I don't really know what they were doing, but 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 like it, it, you have like more subtle ways of that. Like it doesn't have to be patient ID, but you could have like data leakage. And so if you don't ask yourself like, is this too good to be true? Like why is this performing so well? You'll just like hmm. your model is, is essentially even though it's got a hundred percent is useless like if you were to ship it in a medical device it'd be you know like a, a dangerous and bad thing to do and so it's worth thinking about it that's one but to go back to your question like another common failure mode i would say is like let's say you're trying to build uh for a search like you're trying to build some like search model where i type a query and uh, you you help me you know with what my query is going to be and you do, do like google autocomplete uh, one approach is like you literally try to guess the sequence of characters that I'm going to output, and you can do that. And in fact, I think like at some point it makes sense to do that, but it's pretty hard. Uh, there's like a white space of what I could write, um, but you know you could spend weeks and weeks like just iterating on the sequence to sequence model, or like some complex models like predict the sequence of characters. Whereas in fact, maybe you could take a much simpler approach where instead like I start typing my characters. And you just suggest like one of five categories. Like maybe you're searching about you know like books. Maybe it's about mattresses, and like that is much easier, and that's something you could do in a couple of days. Uh, but it might be ninety percent as useful. And so sometimes it's just about kind of like thinking back and saying like my first results were bad. Could I change the product so that I, I change the modeling approach so that it's much easier? Um, and that's that's I think like a very common failure mode where um, you sink way too many times on the machine learning, whereas you could like save yourself a lot of time by changing your product slightly. I think these like learnings from leading these projects, I th- I think it's really cool because I feel they proxy a lot of times where big companies right they want to leverage ML and it's usually you know someone maybe from the product side right that are, that are like hey is this like something that we can do to make our product better um, so then you know you you get like someone that's sort of new either to the data set or to like the the, the sort of the, deployment environment and then trying to kind of build this thing out end to end and i'm kind of curious like do you have any sort of tips or how you think about like how to help like non-ml people that want to use ml to um be more effective i think in terms of like what they should expect right because a lot of times maybe you know some of the i think the sanity checks that you mentioned are very much like hey let's you know, make sure that this thing, maybe we can solve it by rules uh, uh, first before we actually try ML. But um, yeah, I wanted to give your thoughts around that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was one of the patterns that we kept seeing that like companies would invest, you know, in, in a lot of uh, ML engineers and, and data scientists and struggle to reap the rewards. Um, I think the, the, the rules that you talked about is, is a big one where you kind of want to call out ideas that 
are um, there's that there's machine learning and there's magic, and and some <laughs> projects uh, don't need machine learning; they need magic. And you know, it can be sort of like, well, uh, what I'd really like is you know, if if one of you goes to my website, uh, I just kind of like automatically know uh, like what kind of um, uh, you know devices you like and everything about you and I automatically just like show you a page and then I automatically know how much money you have and I kind of like give you the exact price that is like will give me as much money but also you're you are 100% likely to buy it and that's just not going to happen uh, that's you know something that maybe over like years and years and years you'll get like an incremental system that like something like this but it's just not possible and so I think rules um, or at least like writing out a set of heuristics is is a very good first step for anyone that doesn't even know ML um, for the vast majority of ML systems, you can at least get like something off the ground with rules. This is not always true. There's some things with like kind of like advanced computer vision where where you know maybe that's that's less true. But for many like at least uh, uh, concrete problems, which are usually on like, tabular data, you know certainly things like some of the things that we do as sort of like fraud detection or you know like predicting clicks, predicting uh, like recommending videos, you can get pretty far with like heuristics of like well. You know, if you've liked 10 videos in this category, maybe we give you another one. Um, and that doesn't mean that you have to necessarily build that system first, but it can be a good heuristic to know whether you're, you're asking for too much of your ML system. Like, if you can't express it that way, it might be that, that you're just, you just want something magic. I think that's, I don't know, that's the first thing is, is scoping well. Um, I think the second, like, the only other pattern I've seen is just that uh, iteration speed is really the, the key. It's like the projects that, that are the riskiest are the ones where you want to build the world and you know and you have this kind of like holistic um, here's here's everything that we need uh, in order to like fully solve this this problem and, and that's that's usually challenging because at the point where you're doing your first demo solution you don't have enough information about your product or like what you're trying to do. To make the, the like correct design decision, usually like usually what you want again it's like an experimental mindset of you know like oh we think that um, I don't know like we think that uh, people will like this new feature where we recommend videos on YouTube like we think this will be nice um, let's just like try to throw something there and, and and see what the what the uptake of it is like and then once once you've thrown like your very simple model it's taking you a couple of weeks then you can iterate really fast and that usually works well. Because if it was a bad idea, you find out in a couple of weeks, um, as opposed to you know doing like a nine month project that then fails and then kind of like uh, scares people away from ML. I see. Speaking of uh, iterating fast, the Insight project sort of is very fast, right? Like five, four or five weeks, you gotta give something up. And uh, I feel like I will be doing myself a disservice if I don't ask you. Uh, what was the most hilarious misadventure that you've seen um, when you were uh, leading these uh, projects? And you can't I use mean, mine, obviously. That would be, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> unprofessional. So, all right. Well, I only had one example. So. <laughs> um, I think, like, listen, I, I, I don't want to pick on on anyone in particular, um, but I, I, I do think that there's, there's like. The kind of funniest ones, to, to me at least, where, you know, again, like, Insights motto was iterate fast, start with something simple. Um, and sometimes, you know, fellows decided to not do that. Uh, and they take, you know, let's say, um, a classification problem, like where they would 
um, like a common one was uh, uh, classifying support uh, requests. Like somebody writes in as a ticket and they say they have a problem and you want to efficiently route it to say like, you know, is this about, I don't know if it was like an ISP like their connection or is this about like billing? Is this about something else? Um, and they would start and say, all right, well, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start with Bert. Uh, and you know, and they do something like super complicated and they get, but they get their pipeline and they're like, you know, boom, Bert, like 85% accuracy. And then usually the feedback we'd give them is like, it's great. Like happy you got it. But in order to, to kind of contextualize this for, for someone, you probably want to just compare it to like a simple like baseline or like some simple thing you do yourself. Um, okay. And, Quick thing for our listeners, uh, can you just explain quickly, uh, Bert? Uh, what what is it? Oh, Bert is like a, a an advanced natural language uh, processing model where where essentially uh, it was pre trained by Google on a very very large corpus of data, and it performs really well um, when when you take this very large uh, model and kind of fine tune it on your data set. Usually, you get some pretty good results uh, pretty fast, but it it is still pretty pretty heavy and pretty unwieldy and. And at least, you know, as of this podcast, usually not the fastest thing uh, that you could do, uh, but that might change. Uh, but so they'd start with this kind of like advanced method and also like pretty, pretty heavy duty method. Uh, and then he said, like, all right, well, do you want to try like a baseline? Maybe you could try some simple machine learning model or maybe like you could just write, you know, like a, a, a like a if else, like a switch uh, a function and just say like, well, how would you do it? And then, you know, they would get 95% and I like, just like blow their very complicated model out of the water. And like... Nice. I mean, that's really a brutal situation to be in because then, you know, you're like, well, I guess like either you have to lie about how you got to this result and say like, no, 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 no. I started with a simple <laughs> model, you know, and then I tried something complicated, but it didn't work out. But like, it's really not a good look if you're like this person that's like, well, you know, I like used this like massive weapon uh, and then I realized that like a fly swatter would have been enough. Um, that was, those kind of mistakes were usually like, pretty brutal and, and honestly pretty disheartening to see like I think it's also demoralizing because you're kind of like oh why did I do this um, so that's why we insisted on that so much is, is that we've, we've seen that pattern really a lot of times it's interesting that uh, like from at Insight for instance when fellows go through this process it's unfortunate and as you mentioned disheartening but again they the cost is not that high like in many cases they could you know change the project or pivot or do something else uh, do you do you think it's also applicable to many teams and companies who are trying to do this where uh, at least for someone who is not who doesn't work on machine learning um, i don't think about machine learning as a solution to a problem that i want to solve first i'm like how can i do it brute force or like through rules for instance or like the switch cases that's what i think about uh, but yeah. do you feel like sometimes teams fall into uh, this trap as well where they use machine learning to solve a problem where it's not the best solution or it's not the best tool to solve that problem. And like, if that happens, like how could one go about figuring out whether ML is the right approach for something or whether for something you just need something much simplistic that satisfies the spec? Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you, you know, manage to write a flowchart that solves that, you'll make millions because uh, I think that's a really hard hmm. problem. Uh, <laughs> There's there's a paper again I think it's it's by Google that um, I think it's titled if I remember correctly you know machine learning um, the high interest credit card of technical debt oh I think I've seen uh, <laughs> yeah yeah I've read that it's uh, it's a very catchy title it's, it's an a interesting very, one it's catchy title and it's, it's an excellent paper because like machine learning systems the, the issue with them is like they can be super valuable again. Uh, like I, I don't think we need to make that argument here, but like, yeah. you know, analyst systems that are deployed uh, sometimes can like make or break a company or certainly 
um, make millions and millions of dollars. And, and, and uh, usually a good ML system will uh, outperform, you know, like, like rules or switch case or heuristics, like almost always. But mm. um, there's like a, a huge upfront cost to getting it right, or oftentimes a large upfront cost. And then like a large cost of, of maintenance, which we can get into that after. But like yeah. keeping your models running well and, and behaving well is really hard. Um, I guess, you, yeah, you just had a, a previous podcast episode about that. So, uh, you know all about it, but, um, I think that the, like heuristic in a sense of, I guess, like heuristic for, for you, a person to know whether machine learning is, is a good idea, whether you should do, do rules is kind of like, it depends a lot on your company environment. Initially, there's some companies where, you know, you have infrastructure teams and machine learning platform teams. Uh, that expose to you really nice primitives when you can say, oh, like, we already have this feature store where we have a bunch of features, you know, I can use, like, you know, uh, various attributes that I can use uh, for a model, and then I can just kind of, like, even maybe, like, have a UI where I can click and, like, train this model, and I can see if it's good, and it doesn't cost me anything to deploy it, and, you know, and maybe I can have, like, some data scientists look at it and tell me if I missed something, but it's pretty self-serve. I think, I think that's the dream, and some companies are there, and that's if you're there, then like I, I actually like would encourage uh, in, in those companies. I think the success stories we hear is like everybody can just kind of like, experiment, and then uh, yeah. most people have have uh, at least a few good ideas, and so it's great. Mm. Um, that's what you want. If that's not the case, then I think you want to be basically like do a an ROI calculation of like for teams that currently have models in production, how much time does it take them? Like how long on their roadmap? Like how much of it is you know just keep our model alive? Or like, or like refresh our model, and you know how much is that in terms of salary costs, and is your application worth as, at least that many dollars? I think would be the number one thing. Um, and if if the answer is like uh, there's no team at the company that has ML models in production, then like you should almost certainly not do it if you're not like an ML engineer or, or like a, a, or, or somebody that has experience with it. Um, so I think it depends a lot on the company. No, that that's a really good answer. I mean, that's really good advice uh, for people thinking about machine learning in general and thinking of those trade-offs and costs because, well, it's not free <laughs> for sure. It, it oh. takes, uh, and I I definitely want to get into that life cycle of machine learning models in general. Uh, like once you deploy it, uh, how do you keep it alive? For instance, but before I jump there, uh, I want to ask you this: so, so you were at Insight, you saw a lot of teams uh, or machine learning teams structured in, a, in many different ways who also worked in many different ways uh, and then you have been at stripe for a little over a year uh, now i think uh, almost two now year and oh, almost two years uh so what what made you choose stripe and can you talk a little bit about the team you're on and what you do yeah for sure um yeah so i mean i guess first of all I, I, before i say why i chose stripe it's like i uh why i left insight is mm -hmm. is also because so at insight i was leading these projects and it was super fun uh, and I got really to see the world of ML, and I'm, I'm extremely thankful for it because I, it's very rare that you can be in a role where, like, you know, uh, you're at the same time working on like helping an NLP project, and then like trying to do like a cutting edge, uh, you know, like reinforcement learning, like a like research thing, and then you're also doing uh, production like ML engineer for companies. It was super fun, mm. but I missed being an IC myself. And so after uh, after uh, Insight, I really wanted to get back to doing machine learning myself because I really missed it. Um, and so then I looked at various companies and I think there's, I mean, I, I, I don't know how, how, how much of that we should, we should get into like in this conversation, but there's a lot of different ways to structure, uh, ML companies and to have different, um, 
uh, employees on an ML team like have different roles and how you do that partnership can uh, that that's a whole um, realm in and of itself and I think Stripe does that pretty well uh, but one of the main reasons that attracted me to Stripe is that I felt like one of the biggest uh, challenges of, of, of ML is actually I mean the zero to one aspect we talked about there's many failure modes but it's actually the sort of like oh you've built a model and now it's serving you know millions billions of users like however many like now it's popular now it's used like now what like mm. do you just keep that model there forever how do you know if it starts doing something horribly wrong um, like there's there's you know so many like um, uh, examples of models for example exhibiting bias right in search results like how do you even detect that uh, ahead of time how would you be aware of it um, if you retrain your model um, and it kind of like looked better on your on your test set and your number went up like should you ship it? How do you know? Uh, like that aspect of sort of like the engineering around ML ops, or like the the it almost. I mean, people call it ML ops, but it's almost just like uh, uh, quality assurance for for models, right? Where it's like yeah. <laughs> ML ops sounds, sounds definitely much better. Than <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but um, yeah, it's good branding, I guess. That's why I wasn't in charge of coming up with the name. Uh, <laughs> But, but yeah, like that, I, I don't know, like to me, it actually sounded uh, way more fascinating and maybe because I had been a lot in the zero mm. to one world, but I really wanted to like go at a company like Stripe, which sort of like has, um, you know, uh, like a really good engineering reputation and like really strong engineers and has also is like at a crucial uh, uh, point in the, in, in like uh, our, our, our customers, our merchants workflows, right? It's like. It's not like we're this tool that, like, if we break, you know, whatever, we'll see mm -hmm. what happens. It's like Stripe processes uh, their payments, and so it's an extremely sort of like high bar. If you're going to have, I work on the on the fraud team at Stripe, and so the the models I ship are the ones that decide whether a payment is fraudulent or not, and and if it's blocked it or not. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of a, a like a very compelling reason, let's say, hmm. to get that right uh, yeah. and to make that like a really important part of your workflow. And so, yeah, I, I was just fascinated with that. Um, and wanted to both learn more about it at a company that you know uh, has has seen like immense growth and has like a really good engineering reputation and and try to contribute because it like when I was looking around for resources there wasn't much it's not something that seems figured out uh, and mm -hmm. so it was it, it was attractive for that reason. I see that that makes sense. I mean I think the fraud team that you mentioned it's like the the cost of getting a model or an incorrect model deployed in production is extremely high in that case. So uh, the the engineering rigor you need around quality assurance uh, yeah. is, is much needed uh, so talking about that so you've touched a little on uh, that exploration phase of going from zero to one uh, can you touch on the life cycle of a machine learning model once it's deployed in production like when I think about a software or when I think about a web application for instance that is doing let's just say serving cat videos uh, in my head, I can think about, okay, this is how you would go about running it in production, keeping it alive. Uh, this is how the storage would look like and like everything that goes into running it in production. For some of the aspects that you mentioned, uh, like let's just figure out once you train a model, how do you decide that this should be deployed in production? Like let's just start there and then we can build on top of that. Yeah. I mean, it should be easy, right? Uh, <laughs> if it's better, you deploy it. Um, uh, or rather, what, what I meant to ask is, how do you know if it's better? When you train a model oh. and there is one there is one running in production, how do you know the one you just trained is better than that one? Like, how, how do you validate that? 
Yeah, yeah. Just to be clear, I, I said it should be easy. I, it is definitely oh. not. Uh, so I, was, <laughs> I, I got the sarcasm. Ron is not paying attention. No, for, for people, not, for, for people not in machine learning. Uh, I, I'll play that hack. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, no, no, it's a good question because it's hard. Uh, I, I think there's a few things. So, so I guess like the easy part um, is is all the way at the start where you know you have your model in production, and hopefully, you know, you you like. You can use it to score, you know, some set of transactions offline. Let's say uh, for Stripe, because we're talking about fraud, um, or you know, you score offline and you score the same data set with your new model, and then you have some performance metrics. So like, you know, for for uh, again, fraud Stripe, it might be like how many fraudulent transactions do we catch uh, while you know maintaining the same level of false positives, um, and you say, oh, well, it's higher, so you know, it's better. Uh, but but then like what usually happens. Uh, and this kind of like multiplies if your use case is more complicated, if your user base is more diverse, is that you have the like top line performance metric and that's good, but that does not tell you whether a model is good enough to deploy for a few reasons. Um, one example is, uh, let's say I train this new model uh, and it does catch more fraud than the old model and it doesn't have you know many more false positives in aggregate, it's the same level, but it turns out that I've blocked, uh, here I'll use France as an example because I'm French, I've blocked every person in France. Uh, you know, and somehow like I've lowered the block rate in every other country, so like in aggregate you don't see it, but I've just blocked all of France, um, and and you know, and, and yet the model performs better in aggregate, so like yeah. if you were just looking at the aggregate metric you would ship it. And so I think like usually what, like the, the terminology is here is like you'll have guardrails metric, guard, mm-hmm. guardrail metrics where, mm-hmm. you know, there's a set of kind of constraints that you want to be true about your new model uh, before you release it. And so, you know, for like a search engine, you might also have sort of bias guardrails where you're like trying to make sure that, yeah, maybe your new model is better at, at like uh, improving the click-through rate of, you know, people click on the results more often. But also, you know, it doesn't start, uh, you know, being super biased or like when, when you type like something, it, it, it uh, uh, promotes suggestive content that it should not or that sort of stuff. Um, what's really hard about those is that, the set of, of potential things that could go wrong is almost infinite. It's like writing sort of all of those, right? It's like, oh, well, it doesn't block all of France. Also, it doesn't happen to block, you know, everybody that's like over 25 or whatever. Like, like there are uh, about like an inf- infinite uh, ways that it could fail. And so you kind of just have to think of a representative sample of them and then and then carry on. And so, you know, sorry, go ahead. And and I feel like for that, a lot of times, and I feel like that's what I find interesting about ML is that it does require a deep partnership with the product because, right, like to how do you go about like doing those slices? A lot of times it's very specific to the domain that you're in, right? Like maybe age, uh, you know, geographic information, that's pretty general. But once you go deeper into like what kind of transaction it is, um, I, I think, right, like that. It, has that been your experience? I, actually, sorry, maybe go ahead with your original thought, but... Uh. No, 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 100%. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll even, like, there's even one more, which is which is that once you start adding enough metrics, just through laws of statistics alone, for every model that you want to release, it'll be worse on at least, you know, a couple of those. Right. And then, like, you have to have a product conversation of, like, okay, well, if this model is better for everyone, you know, but people that happen to live in Sunnyvale get results that are, like, 1% worse, are, are we okay with that? You know, and, and like, Usually you'll have sort of like these criteria will say, well, this is how much worse it can be for like one of the slices we care about because we trust that sort of like over multiple model releases, like 
you know, the same, it's like we won't pick the same card multiple times and so on average it'll be better for everyone. Um, but, but yeah, you 100% need to have that product conversation and, and like to define which, which slices you care about because the failure mode of, of not having any of those guardrail metrics or of having everything as a guardrail metric are both bad. And, and right. you know, in one case you'll, yeah, in, in both cases you'll end up in a pretty bad situation. Does it happen in cases where like you're having this conversation with product and uh, some of the metrics, like you mentioned, which the model doesn't perform well on, uh, like that becomes a blocker of sorts to roll out that model? So like w- when that happens, how do you go about figuring out, okay, we should retrain this model or do something else to, to move forward? Like how does one go about that? Yeah. I mean, that's uh, ah, that's so fun because uh, there's no way that doesn't exist uh, either, to my knowledge. Uh, so... I'll say more. It, it, you're not stuck, but like, okay. So let's say you know you you have one of those guardrail metrics, and it's like, yeah, we we end up blocking fifty percent of France. And we're like, all right, well, you know, uh, let's try to not do that. Um, and the question is like, well, how do you do that? So so one, you know, you've done the first step of like measuring it, so that's good. So you can either have like, you know, it's that broken out in your test metrics, or you can have explicit tests. Um, there's more and more test libraries, which is kind of cool. That like say like for this model. Here's like a couple examples, and like there's like let's say like France is a country of origin, and like let's verify that it doesn't just like block them. Uh, but so you've detected it, and it's, the question that you're asking is like, how do you fix it? And there's not really like a there's not a, a, a super easy way to give an ML model a human preference. To, you know, what I'm saying like, <laughs> yeah. hey, you're doing great. There's just this one area where you're being really silly, <laughs> and and we'd love for you to not do that. Yeah. And and like the way that you do it is very experimental, where where you'll say like, okay, uh, you know, like. Um, what we're going to do, for example, like a common technique is we're going to take all of the examples that are from France in our data set, uh, and we're going to um, either like uh, upweigh them, which essentially tells the model they're really important, or literally duplicate them. Literally say like, all right, well, we're going to, instead of like, we're, gonna, we're sampling, you know, like one person from each country, but for France, it's going to be 50. And then we're going to train our model, and we're just going to measure whether it's still as good, you know, in general, and whether it stops being silly for France. The other alternative, of course, is that you could say like, well, for, for people from France, we'll just overrule the model and say like, no, no, they're good. But that that is is kind of a road that is extremely dangerous because you do this for one model release and then you release your new model and you're like, oh, now it's you know people that are like eighteen or under. And then before you know it, you just have like a horrible you know if else and it's it, yeah terrible. Like going that. going uh, back to the switch <laughs> statements all over the place. Switch case, yep. Um, that's right. That that that's uh, I definitely I feel I see that at work as well where. Right, it's like if you want to actually change something, right? There's two places: either you change the model or you change the data. And a lot of times, it's yeah. easier to change the data, especially if your model is more complicated, right? Like if it's neural nets, it's almost like yeah, it's gonna be much much harder. But if it's really simple, logic regression, or maybe if even it's rules, then you know you can just like tack that on. Has that been the case yeah. uh, for you as well? Just easier to um, fiddle stuff on the data side. Yeah, I think easier is right, right? Because you could argue, and I'm sure like might have people in the comments that that would, right? That you could say like you could change your model uh, objective so that like you have an additional term that says, oh, and if like mm. you know like 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 a term could be it doesn't have to be about France. If if your concern is like a certain country is getting impacted, you could say like we're going to measure accuracy, but also we're going to have a regularization uh, or like, well, let's just like say like an additional term that lowers the model's performance score. If there's a difference in performance between countries, and and I would say that like there's really interesting uh, papers in that direction and like some applications, but it's definitely harder uh, currently to get that right. I think that might not always be true. It might 
actually, I, I, I'm pretty bullish on the idea that in the future, uh, hopefully near future, that will be more of a thing that you can just kind of specify your concerns. But for now, yeah, um, playing with the data is, is definitely the easiest way to do that. Uh, but it definitely feels unsatisfying as well, right? It feels very happy. <laughs> On one hand, oh. if you're like fixing the model, you're like, ooh, I'm a proper scientist versus if you're just fixing the data, it's like, oh man, you know, I, this is literally QA. Um, but yeah, which is very important. At the same obviously. time, yeah, yeah. And I was going to say like at the same time, I don't know, it, 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 it is a data scientist. Like, the, you know, it's not a model scientist. And, and so like there's there's a reason why that is and it's because it's, it's very much like garbage in garbage out and i found in, in my career you know at insight before insight as a at stripe that you can get very large gains from just looking at the data and it kind of makes sense because like your model is in many ways a black box that optimizes for a thing and you tell it like this is the input just like get the output right and that's great and you can improve that black box so like it runs slightly better and you know like you you make the engine of your car better that's great um but in the data is literally like what you're teaching your model. And so no matter how good your model is, you know, if like you haven't looked at your data in a while, it's very likely that you have like a bunch of garbage in there, like a bunch of, let's say like log events that are test logs and they're just like, you know, nobody bothered to filter them out because whatever. Uh, but then you remove those and you see huge performance gains or, you know, recently um, I had a project where, where like uh, literally just changing how we define like what label, um, we, we use for a given transaction also give like very large uh, uh, gains. And it's sort of like, in many ways, if you, if you enjoy working with data, I find that like, it could be just a very powerful thing to do because it's usually more informative about the actual business application. You kind of get to see like, oh, like, you know, what is the outcome that we're trying to, to model? Uh, and you, you get a lot of, lot of performance gains usually. And I really love that quote. Um, you're a data scientist, not a model scientist. I think that's uh, it's very, very well said. So uh, one thing which I want, there are a couple of things which I want to dig into and in what you said. One aspect of the validation itself. So if I'm thinking about a new version of a software, um, one way to validate whether it's performing well or not is, uh, and again, this is not, this doesn't have machine learning model in it. It's just a web server. We're releasing a new version. One common way to validate is to dark canaries, for instance, where you like, you have uh, one instance of your app on a new version that's taking traffic but not responding back. And no. you, you have logs and metrics to capture whether it's performing as well as the old one or not, or well, likely you want it to perform better. You're also looking for performance regressions and things like that. This requires a lot of infrastructure to exist uh, to validate. Uh, I assume, or I'm curious actually, what kind of infrastructure does one need to do this on the ML side. Uh, so like you have this model in production, you want to validate, like uh, does a team capture all traffic, replay it through tests? Do you have live testing going on? Like wh what are some of the things that teams do uh, to get the signal early in the process? Yeah. What, um, you call this dark canary, is that what you said? Yeah, dark canary, which is uh, you, you have a version of a product, uh, w just yeah. one instance or a few instances, they're just not responding back, they're just taking traffic. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, it's funny because, so similar, there's a very similar, I mean, I imagine a uh, very stolen uh, idea in, in ML, which is the same thing, uh, mm. but usually I've seen it called uh, Shadow, uh, oh, which is amazing that, yeah. to me because it feels like a, like a slightly nerdier, more World of Warcraft version. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a but better I mean, term, I agree, it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so you, you could do that. So, so but, but before we get there, okay, so I would say that, you know, 
the first way that you do it again is like, hopefully, um, when your production model is scoring, you're kind of like logging both its scores and the values of the features and like anything that you could log. Because then what you can do is like you have those logs and when you train a new model, you can say, cool, let's take the logs of the last three days. You know, we haven't trained on that and let's evaluate and see how the model does. And that gives you sort of like an early estimate of performance. It's pretty good. Uh, but there's a bunch of things that can go wrong, especially if like your model is using new features and you have to redefine them. You can kind of like leak data from the future. There also could be like just like some different way, some differences between your online and offline scoring system that can like make that mm. an imperfect evaluation. So you would do exactly what you said, which is you would do shadow where, yeah, you, you basically send every request, you fork it, you send it's like your main um, sort of code path, you know, that, that usually also has like a, a sort of like tighter SLA and then you also duplicate it and you send it, you send it to shadow and shadow scores it and you log that somewhere. And at the end of the day, you compare, you know, production and shadow and you say, okay, this is how they, they um, stack up. And that's a pretty common um, pattern. And in fact, I'm a huge proponent of it. I, I think that um, like a lot of machine learning is about data, as we mentioned, and getting consistency between like this, like uh, the first like log system I talked about, uh, being that like, like making that represent online data is so hard. And it, it is like very hard to get right. And so it's much easier, especially if you like don't have that many resources to just builds the like infra to do shadow, which I would actually argue like at least in the case of machine learning isn't that much because you literally just need another server that can expose an endpoint and that just like hosts your model and like you just log. Um, and, and like that is a great way to measure model performance. Um, and so I think, I don't know, I, I actually only remember that you mentioned that there was a similar process in, in normal engineering. I don't remember what your question was, but I'm a fan of shadow. <laughs> Um, that's, uh, that, that's a great answer. I, I think I remember reading a post about it and I got very inspired and, um, I was trying to figure out how to do it. And then the, I think the setup at our place is a little bit trickier. Um, but I remember like, oh crap, I got to set this up, set this up and then have to connect this to this. And I was like, all right, maybe let's, let's wait, uh, you know, like, let's wait a quarter or two. Um, so for, for you guys, is that something that you guys maintain yourselves, uh, in terms of that? entire sort of shadow mode uh, infrastructure or is there like a different like infra team that uh, like or tooling team that, that helps? There's a so so we have an ML platform team that builds great tooling and, and part of the tooling that they build is sort of like this uh, infrastructure to call models um, and so uh, that's something that we can leverage and then you know we can sort of like have our main production model and then have it yeah another model in shadow uh, and it's for us it's it's not much work on, on our end, which is, which is really nice. So yeah, yeah, it's a lucky position to be in for sure. Nice, nice. Nice. Uh, the, the, the other aspect of running machine learning models in production is also uh, like when something goes wrong, you want to be able to debug it. Um, and again, if I'm comparing it to software, it's like, well, attach a debugger to it, worst case, and see what it is doing. How do you do that uh, with a machine learning model? Like, what are some of the techniques that help debug a model in production? Oh, man. Well, yeah, because I was going to say it's, it's already hard when it's not in production, right? So hmm. if, um, if you give a data scientist a model, I mean, to take our, our previous examples, right? Uh, if you give a data scientist a model and you tell them, like, well, this model somehow has learned that all French people are fraudsters. Like, why? <laughs> uh, you know, like, I've looked at the data, and, 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 you know, like, it doesn't seem clear that that's a pattern. 
and and you know machine learning is not magic so if you if your models learn that there's something in your data set that like mm. leads to that behavior and, and maybe some set of correlations or it could just be honestly you know a data issue right maybe like you just like somehow uh, uh, forgot to, to fill in that that column and, and it just got um mm. misinterpreted but there's no easy path from an observation from a sort of like high level observation of what your model is doing to a resolution other than inspecting the data. Again, you, you can often look at, um, in some models, you can look at like the, the model itself. There's some explainability mm -hmm. to it, uh, but it's rare that it'll answer questions as nuanced as this one. Usually mm -hmm. explainability will give you, you know, let's say globally, this feature is important, like country is important, which, yeah. which is good, but it's not exactly what you're looking for. There's some methods for local explainability, but they also come with like a bunch of caveats and, and you know, and, and like, it's, it's not debugging, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, it's a separate problem, yeah. right? Because like when you say debugging, you're saying like, there's a problem. I know this is wrong. Fix it. Whereas yeah. explainability is a lot of like, oh, this model is doing something really weird. Interesting. You know, let's study it for a while, which yeah. is not, not at all what you want when your model is breaking in production. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's... Oh, it's such an interesting question. I, the, the way I look at it is that it's mostly about monitoring. Mm. Um, and even that is hard, where it's like, your model, how do I say this? Oh, so I, I guess I'll give an example from, from, from Stripe, which is, you know, we have a model that, that tells us whether transactions look, again, fraudulent or legitimate. And so, you know, that model, uh, it scores a bunch of transactions. Uh, and then the question is like, well, how would you know if that model is, is sort of like performing poorly? Uh, you know, due to anything, like maybe some data pipeline breaks and it's not getting the correct features anymore. And the answer is it's, it's really hard because while you can tell that at a certain point in time, the model is doing something it shouldn't do, like if you compare it to another model, when you're in production, like how do you tell the difference between our model is broken and, you know, one merchant that's using Stripe uh, just opened up in a new country that just happens to have an extremely high fraud rate. Like, it'll probably look very similar for that merchant. Like, there's a bunch of, like, fraud, you're like, oh, this is really weird. Like, you know, we should alert on this. Um, but your model is kind of doing the right thing. And so I think, like, before you get to even debugging, getting alerting right is really mm -hmm. hard. Um, and it's something where, like, most uh, alerting systems, monitoring systems, like, I've had, like, struggle really hard to not have too many false positives. Because just trends are crazy and defining what's normal is, is hard. Um, mm. I guess I've been speaking for a while, but one one idea there that I find promising that I that I haven't battle tested as much as I want, but that I think is interesting is like um, you can try to compare your current model, like in production, to your model in Shadow, um, and do that not just like as you're trying to deploy a new model and saying it's good. You could you could try to do that and say like, are these models um, you know reacting similarly? And if like one model is going crazy but not the other one then maybe you should alert on that. Um, but then as far as debugging it, then you still have the problem, like, well, what do you do about it? Usually mm -hmm. you roll back. No, uh, it's interesting because there's like the sort of the data coming in, that could be the issue, right, as you described. And then you could also be the model itself. So then how do you sort of distinguish the two? Because the data coming in is maybe almost like a, well, I guess both are kind of like an A-B testing thing where you also need to kind of set up sort of time frame, right? Because as you said, it's not a point in time like you actually need to worry about sort of like what are just uh, statistic outliers versus what's actually uh, it being broken. Um, yeah, but exactly. You mentioned alerting. So does, 
do you also take care of alerting when you deploy a model? Like, is it, uh, I know different teams are, or ML teams at different companies are structured differently, but at Stripe for your team, like, let's say you did all of the validation that had to happen before you say, enable this thing in production. When you do that is, uh, let's say there was a new constraint you need to add or you need to ensure it works fine. Like, is alerting a part of that process that you work on or is it a separate team that takes care of that? Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how other companies do this as well. But I, so for Stripe, the way it would work is, I think it depends at which level of alerting. So mm. if um, uh, something is happening to the features, where maybe the features you know aren't being populated or something, and it's sort of like an end for failure, then we would usually not um, design that alerting system or or carry the pager for it. Mm. Uh, if it's something around, you know, like maybe model throughput, uh, that seems infra-related as well. But if it's something around the ways that the, the model itself is producing predictions, then that is something that our team owns. And I think that that's, that kind of makes sense because it's something that's extremely tied to the product, right? Like, really, the product team can tell you, because uh, I guess we're not only, uh, like, you don't only alert on uh, anomalies, you alert on uh, undesirable behavior. Kind of like going beyond, like, oh, is the model performing well or not? You could say, like, well, you know, we expect that this this uh, model would like have catch, you know, this many fraudsters a day, and we've seen that like it's it's much lower, mm. and so like we kind of know what that um, limit is, uh, mm. whereas like you know an NFR team uh, might not, and so well, there's kind of room to provide maybe services so that team can like. Uh, uh, make just construct these alerts easily which is try for like you know to have to like on an infra level i think kind of makes sense that for the like is your model really doing something crazy it should be on the product team because that mm-hmm. that is just a different definition for each product team right mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense uh in terms of like the stream structure uh, who are the partner teams that you work with uh most frequently like you mentioned product is one aspect i would imagine infra team would be another but like can you tell us more about how the team is structured yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, obviously close collaboration with, with products. I mean, I wasn't even thinking of it as, as a different team. So, you know, like uh, a product team with some embedded, um, ML, uh, uh, folks on it, but, but in some ways it can be solved as a different team as well, but, but yeah, very close, very close collaboration with, with product. Then, um, you know, other than just, uh, then collaborating, I think like similar to other engineers, you have sort of like just foundation teams that can like manage, you know, uh, servers, infrastructure, uh, developer tools, um, you know, that's, I guess, w- w- much less of a collaboration and more like we're really thankful for their uh, services and, and uh, we use them to save so much time. We collaborate with um, platform machine learning teams or machine learning platform teams, I should say. And they're kind of a, a two aspects to that, which is serving models. Um, and we have some uh, blog posts around sort of, uh, you know, our model training and serving framework where like many companies we've, we have sort of like an, an in-house way to define a model, you know, uh, train it and then deploy it and be kind of confident that that model is, you know, item potent and will, will, uh, or sorry, I mean immutable and will, um, will kind of do the same thing online that it did uh, when you train it offline. And then there's a, a feature computation side of it where, um, we collaborate closely with that team that kind of produces, um, systems that help us define features that again will be the same offline and online that won't um, 
where we won't have some like time traveling where we're seeing data from the future when we're training models. Um, and they, they also own uh, the feature store aspect of it where we, we get feature as, uh, features very quick, very quickly during transactions. Mm, I see. That makes sense. Uh, wh- one thing which you mentioned, it kind of reminded me of uh, something we were discussing before we started recording, which was uh, versioning of the models or rather the code itself that trained the model. Uh, like if I'm thinking about, again, regular software development lifecycle, there comes a point where you decide to deprecate a system because it has served its purpose and you're like, yeah, we got to build a new one. Uh, does that ever happen with ML models where you say, Oh, this thing has been running really well for the last X number of years, <clears throat> and now it's time to replace it. And if so, well, like you said, in some cases, either you don't have the code that trained that model or the data that trained that model. So, like, uh, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, ML is crazy for that reason. <laughs> Again, like for for more context, yeah, I guess like what we're talking about is it's very possible. You know, if you have a good model hosting service, that like all you need is like you train the model and then you know, you, you uh, serialized it, and then the model serving service just takes care of it, and it can take in uh, requests for pretty much forever. And so if you've done that four years ago, and your code base, your training code base has changed, and like you trained it on a version of scikit-learn that's deprecated, and you know, like maybe it doesn't even work on, uh, on your current uh, infrastructure, like you can still have this model that works well, and know that it's impossible for you to retrain it. And as much as possible, I think Stripe tries pretty hard for that never to happen. And so, you know, like when, when you train a model, the idea is that as part of that, you want to serialize and keep like, what's the data set, both train and test, what are all of the features? What's the version, you know, like the Git hash that you train it on. And so at least, you know, maybe there, there could still be factors that could make you unable to retrain that model, but like at least you can reconstruct almost uh, exactly what it was. Um, but I think it's a hard, pattern to get right. And I'll say this, I think the main failure mode is that if I'm an ML engineer and I'm on a project and let's say I'm, I'm building this new model uh, for this new use case, it's never been done before. I build my model, it's good, I ship it. And you know, I, I move on to something else. Uh, and it's possible that like retraining this model every month would like be very valuable or maybe every year. But it's like, I'm not going to do it. You know, and it's like, I, I don't have other things to do. Or like, usually it'll just fall below the cut line of the projects that most people have. And so most models don't have that baked in. And so, you know, it's, it's obviously like an opportunity um, at the infra level where you could say like, okay, well, maybe it's something that we could kind of set up where uh, if a model is too old, we have to say like, hey, hey, we need to retrain it because we're afraid that we're going to like lose the ability to do so. But then you go back to what we were talking about, which is, it's not trivial to automate. It's like you retrain it, uh, and then you block all of friends again. And then if there's not an engineer to look at it, uh, you know, like you're going to auto ship it, and that's going to be terrible. And so, I don't know. I, I honestly think that's why this world is fascinating to me. Is it feels like it feels like we just don't have almost the right vocabulary for it yet. Like mm-hmm. we are, you know, kind of mad scientists that create these like magic black boxes that really do good things for us. And we're like, oh. This black box, it's great. Let's like put it in a server and keep it there. And hopefully it keeps being kind to us over the years. And, and like, I, I think there's like some aspect of seeing like, not only like, you know, model lineage and like model development, but kind of like almost like the tree of life for models. So like how you evolve yeah. like one model to the next, which 
is just not. I don't know. I haven't read anything anything great about it. I think every team is kind of figuring it out for for itself. It's it's yeah, it's fascinating and, and challenging. Yeah, on one hand, I feel like it's just a matter of time for um, you know this whole CI/CD thing, right, to maybe kind of permeate to other areas like ML. But on the other hand, exactly what you were talking about, where having to have product to take a look whenever you want to deploy something when you do block half of France, like we're coming up with those criteria. I feel like it is a lot trickier to um, to, to 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 automate, even if your tooling keeps on getting better. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll we'll see. Yeah. I mean, the other interesting part is that when something is working well, we don't tend to look at it. Uh, at least I don't. Uh, because when something's working, it's like, yeah, don't touch it. It's it's, do, it's doing its thing. And uh, unintentionally, we kind of abandon. I mean, it's a strong word, but yeah, we kind of abandon that uh, specific, in this case, model or in other cases, software in general. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a really good point. I, I, in fact, if you think about it, you have asymmetrical uh, outcomes, right? Where it's like you have this model. Mm-hmm. And you could retrain it, and maybe it'd be like 0.5% better. And maybe that's great. Maybe that's a million dollars a year. But there's also like a 1% chance that you break everything. And, you know, is that really worth it? And at least like (laughs) even if it's not at the company level to you as like the person that's going to do it, are you going to make that decision of taking that gamble? Most people are pretty risk averse. And so they'll say like, to your point, yeah, you know, it's... It, it's it's working well enough. We we don't we don't need that extra that extra million dollars. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we are getting towards the end of the conversation, and uh, I would do this podcast a disservice if we didn't mention that you wrote a successful book, uh, building machine learning powered applications. Uh, can you? We'll, we'll link it in our show notes, and we highly recommend our listeners go check out the book. Uh, can you? tell our listeners a little bit about what the book is uh, and like what kind of audience it would be most relevant to at this point? Yeah. Oh, thanks so much. Um, yeah, I'll just do a 25-minute overview. That's okay. <laughs> uh, cut, go, go for it. <laughs> um, no, I think it talks a lot about um, what we've talked about here. I think specifically it talks a lot about that first part, which is you know how... Like from my experience uh, as a data scientist and leading projects at Insight, um, I've seen a lot of sort of like good and bad ways to quickly build an ML project for a product application. So it's really for that like zero to one. You know, you have a product idea. Maybe you have some experience with ML. Maybe you don't. Um, you have some. It requires a little bit of Python experience, or at least there's some Python code to read. Um, and and you want to kind of bridge that gap between like product idea. Or you know, just like having done some uh, data science on the side and kind of making it useful. And and the goal is is yeah to, to focus more on the process of machine learning and less about the theory of it. There's a lot of excellent books about like the theory or how you use the frameworks. And I wanted to write one that was about that experimental mindset of like, so you know, you want to ship an ML product, what do you do next? Uh, and and so yeah, uh, that was the goal of the book. And, and so far uh, from the feedback I've gotten, uh, that seems to be the target demographic that, that really uh, benefits from it the most. So if that's, you know, something that resonates with, with anyone, I would, I would suggest it. There's also, I should say, a free chapter uh, available online that maybe I could send to you and you can add it to the, the show notes for people that want to check it out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what would be a good website for people to go check out this book? Oh, if you just go to mlpowered.com, um, you, will, you will have that book that's, you know, machine learning, ml powered.com and if you go to that slash book that's where the free chapter is awesome uh we'll certainly link that in our show notes and we highly encourage our listeners to check it out uh i I have a 
slightly different question about the book. Um, I'm actually a lot more curious about uh, the process that uh, uh, that you kind of went through to write the book itself. And uh, what I mean by that is there might be some engineers out there who are who have some ideas or uh, want to put out a book. Like, how does one start? Uh, in this case, O'Reilly is the publisher of the book. Uh, like, for, for people who want to either find a publisher or just think about like, hey, I have this idea, should this be a book? And if it should be, what do I do next? Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that process looked like for you? Oh, talk about a short, you know, one minute answer here that I can give you. Um, <laughs> okay, what? so just to summarize, the questions were, how should you know if you can write a book? How would you go about writing a book? How would you know if it's a useful book to write? Is that right? Yes, yeah. Easy peasy. Um, so I will say that, O'Reilly is a great publisher, and they have, uh, so maybe the, the like simplest answer is they have a, a, a kind of like a submission template that if you want to write a book, you can send them a template and, or, or fill it out and, and, you know, tell them, I want to write a book about this. Uh, and it has, you know, three or four pages of really good questions that you definitely should ask yourself before you write a book. Like, who's my audience? Like, why have they, why don't they know about this? Is there another book? Are there no resources? If there are no resources, is it because no one's interested in it? You know, kind of like what, just kind of market sizing, uh, but also like, why are you the good, the, the right person to talk about this? So I think that's a great process, even if you don't end up submitting it to just kind of working through it yourself. Um, the other thing I'll say is for me, the way I got started is I started by writing blog posts and I recommend that to anyone that wants to write a book uh, because writing a book is uh, a lot of work. Uh, it, it takes a very long time. It, it, people warned me that it would take a long time and it took much longer than I thought it would. Uh, whereas writing a blog post is, is already hard actually, but, but sort of like could tell you like first, do you like this? If you hate writing a blog post, you know, that writing a book might not be for you. Uh, but also it can help you gauge your audience size. And, and I guess that's the last point for me, which is I started by writing blog posts because I developed strong opinions about machine learning from doing all these projects. And after a few blog posts, I, I wrote a blog post that was extremely popular. That was around sort of like how to do NLP projects. I think that blog post now has like half a million reads. Um, and, and that, uh, particular blog post was the reason that O'Reilly reached out because they were like, Oh, you like to write, you're okay at it. Uh, and uh, you have an audience. So it's probably a good idea for you to write a book. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's why it's kind of like a natural thing to do. Like try mm -hmm. that for a while, see if you like it. Um, and if you do go, go forth with the book. Oh, that's, that's great advice. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and I know we, we're getting towards the end and there is one question which we ask almost everyone on the show. Uh, what was the last tool you discovered and really liked? You know, what's really tragic is that I remember listening to uh, the most recent episode of your podcast, hearing this question and thinking, hmm, I should think of a great answer for this. <laughs> and then I forgot about it. <laughs> Um, he got you now, Manu. <laughs> oh man, the last tool. Uh, I I'm gonna cheat because it's not the last tool I used, but it did That's come fine. back up uh, recently. Um, it's something I'd use actually. It's actually used in the book, uh, hmm. but I hadn't thought about it for a while, and it came up at, at work because I, it it uh, happened to be something that really helped. Great expectations is a library that essentially tries to make tests for machine learning models, which is not an easy thing to do. Because again, like it's not clear how you test them. But I truly think that that's sort of like one of the, the promising areas uh, going forward. And the reason I really liked it is that it forces you to like 
you know, you build your machine learning model and it's kind of like, you know, test driven development advocates would say it forces you to kind of maybe be a little bit more thoughtful. You're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, what do what do I actually want to guarantee? You know, like to give you an example, if it's a fraud, uh, a system that catches fraud, it's like, what's an example of a transaction that's not fraud? Like, how do you write that of like, here's an example of this transaction. This transaction is a flawless transaction, no fraud, you know, and, and like kind of like working through that process is is both really useful and really productive. So for anyone that's thinking of doing it in machine learning or, 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 or you know, uh, does it already, great expectations. It's an awesome library. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you shared a lot in this conversation. Is there anything else you, you would like to share with our listeners? Yes. My deepest uh, thanks and, and appreciation. This is awesome. Thanks for hosting this podcast. It's so fun. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. Like, this was awesome. I have learned a lot uh, talking to you on the show. Uh, and I'm sure many of our listeners will as well. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Manu. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Anu. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.